any of the children want to go and follow Mrs. Anderson along here and Mountain now Nolda's over here. Children, come on over. By the way, Michael, thank you and the worship team for all you guys do week in and week out. We appreciate it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we could be here today to hear your word. We thank you, Father, for the scriptures that you've given us. And we would ask that, Father, that you would be with us and help us as we listen to your scriptures. That, Father, that we're looking at a passage that's almost 2,000 years old, and yet we realize it speaks to us even today. Father, we pray for those that are traveling today, and there are many on the road, and we pray that you'd protect them. Pray that their time of being away would be a comfort for them and a help for them and encouragement. And we pray, Father, now that you would be with us as we come to the scriptures, that what we hear, what we hear from you in your scriptures, with that which would challenge us and encourage us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us in the last few weeks, you know we've been doing a series in 1 Corinthians. And it's such a wonderful book. It's a terrific book. And you really get to see the heart of this apostle, the Apostle Paul. And it's a great passage. And just to give you a little bit of background, this morning what we're going to be doing is going to two short passages that kind of go stick together. It's chapters 8 and 9, if you have your Bible with you, where you can also see it on the screen probably as well. And what we're going to do, just real quick, just a review like we often do, if you have not been here for the last few weeks, give you an idea of where we're at. Last week, if you remember, that last week was an unusual passage, but an important passage dealing with issues of marriage and not being married and other issues like that. And in it, it talked about married, not mutual conjugal rights between a husband and a wife, Christian couple in their life, and how important that is and, and not to give that up. And it talks about the importance of marital fidelity, that when you're married, you're married for good. It's not like keep changing spouses. It's like you stick with the person that God gave you. And then it talks about living in the light of the return of Christ. And we mentioned last week that the Apostle Paul, particularly in last week and some in this week as well, there's this overarching theme of the fact that Christ is coming back and we need to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, you see some of the things he says, well, Jesus is coming right back. And so, you know, it's going to happen. Well, it hasn't. It's been almost 2,000 years. We're still waiting for the return of Christ. But still, we are Christians who are living in the light of the return of Christ and longing for it. And that last thing he talked about, saying, you know, stay in the situation you are. Okay, you're a slave. He tells the person who's a slave there in the church, saying, you know, it's not a great situation. I realize that. But maybe God could use you to have an impact upon this pagan man that owns you. And, of course, there's many stories early on in the time of the church where that exactly happened where a person would come to faith because of the faith of their slave who knew the Lord and shared with them. And so the thing is, as much as possible, stay in the situation which God has given you. And so here's where we pick up our passage right now. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's real short. The second one's a little bit longer. But it's an interesting passage. Let's look at it together, if you would. Paul here has been having this, the Apostle Paul had to deal with one of the most important and difficult issues that was going on. They lived in a culture that was just absolutely overwhelmed with idolatry. The Christians that were there, the Jewish people that were there, for them, it just gave them the heebie-jeebies to see all these different shrines 
all these different crazy things. Aphrodite is everywhere, all these different little shrines. And it was hard for these Christians. It was particularly difficult for people who were coming out of that paganism and coming to Christ. It brought all kinds of issues and questions about how do we live this life? What is it God asking for us to do? And so Paul has to deal with this. And so he says, now about food offered to idols. Now it's interesting, both the pagans, they did offerings with things on the altar and they burned up some things and sometimes they just cut it up and gave to others. But saying they were new with all that was very, very common. But he says, now about foods offered to idols. He says, listen, we know that, quote, we all have knowledge. In other words, as believers, we know there's no such thing as other gods and kings and stuff like that. He said, we know there's only one God. But he says, be careful. He said, you know, we, you're all so proud about you have knowledge. We have knowledge. They were saturated with the idea of knowledge. And he said, listen, you know, we all have knowledge. But he then stops him real quick and says, but wait a minute. Knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. In other words, for a group that were just absorbed with the whole idea of how important knowledge was, he's saying, yes, but. In fact, we're going to see in this passage, he continues uses this yes, but theme again and again. He says, okay, yeah, we, knowledge is important, but he said, what often happens to people who get to be very, very smart, or at least think that they're very, very smart? They get arrogant. And he says, now, he says, knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he doesn't know as he ought to know it. And then he says, but if anyone loves God, he's known by him. If we've come to faith in Christ, he knows who we are. He knows our challenges. He knows our struggles. And he said, but let me tell you about this. What about eating food offered to idols? Then we know that, quote, an idol is nothing in this world, and there's no God but one. He's saying, all right, he's speaking to his Christian uh, people there. That many of them have come out of paganism. Some of them are Jew come out of a Judaism role. And he says here, listen, you know, we know that there's no such thing as this. But he realized that many of these pagans who have converted to faith in Christ, that this is a huge leap. Their parents always offered these idols, uh, these uh, sacrifices. The, their grandparents, it's like all part of their culture. They're saturated with it. And he said, how do we live like this? So he said, listen, about eating food to offer to idols, because this has been a big issue for them. He said, we know that, quote, an, an idol's nothing in the world. There's really no reality behind it. And he said, yeah, we know there's no God by one. And by the way, this is an important passage, because already early here in the church, we're recognizing there's the monotheism. That is, we believe in only one God. This can be emphasized in this passage. There's only one God. And of course, for many of these people coming out of paganism, like, what's your problem? We got 185. How come you've only got one? It's like, well, let's tell you why we believe there's only one God. And so he said, there's no God but one. But notice what he said. But remember, if, by the way, that this issue about idolatry came up at the Jerusalem Council. And there they had this big thing, like, what do we do? These people are growing up in this culture of so much idolatry. What do we ask them to do? And one of the things they asked was this, since it's from Acts chapter 15. When they made this decision, they asked the churches to follow this idea, well, not this idea, follow this rule. First of all, we've to put no greater burden on, on you than is necessary things. What? That you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that's been strangled. In other words, saying we, in your churches, we'd encourage you to do that. Not do that as much as you can uh, and do that as all. Well. So notice what happens. Picking up in verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, this is Paul like writing and saying, whether in heaven or on earth, 
as there are many gods and there's many lords, yet for us, there is one God. Here it goes. It goes back to this idea of the oneness of God. Yet there's only one God, the Father, through whom all things, and we for him and our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and we are through him. Again, remember, most of these, some of these people who are Jewish, they're from a Jewish perspective. Right up here on the screen, let me see if I can even remember how to do this one. Okay, I'll probably get it wrong. Here it is. Right up here, here you've got the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, Yahweh, is one God. Okay? It's going all the way back to the beginnings of Judaism, recognizing the monotheistic, there is one God. And so he's saying, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords, but for us there's only one God, the Father. And so it's very, very important to remember that for them, this is a really important thing, the oneness of God. And so it goes on to say, however, and that's right, he's one of these things, but let me tell you this. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In other words, there are Christians, there are pagans who have become Christians, they're serving the Lord, and yet, you know, in some ways they've had so much of it. He said, not everyone has this knowledge. They're like, oh, can't we just do a little bit of Aphrodite's along with this Jesus? No, you really can't. There's only just Jesus. He said, in fact, some have been so used to idolatry up to now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, because they knew idolatry all their life and suddenly they're Christians, it's like, you know, I go to the meat market and every single place they've got meat there, but almost every place that you go to, that meat was at some point put on a pagan idol I mean, but on a pagan place and burned. Or, in that case, was their meat was provided for them. So he was saying, I, 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 I'm a young believer. Um, I know we're not supposed to do this, but I'm not sure what to do. And I know there's other Christians that have no trouble uh, eating that food. They said, that's a great steak, and I don't care if you did, you know, have Aphrodite's you know, name on it. But it was delicious, and I have no problem with it. And Paul's saying, you know, but other Christians, particularly newer believers, may have a problem with that. They realize that they have to make a complete break between their paganism and their knowledge of God. And he said, their college, that means he said their conscience is defiled. And then he makes this interesting statement. He said, food's not going to make us acceptable to God. We're not inferior if we don't eat, and we're no better if we do eat it. He said, it's not the food itself. He said, I want you to be careful, though, that these rights of you, and this word rights is going to be important this morning, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm sure, Ed, I heard that phrase, a stumbling block, a hundred times when I was a kid. I quit thinking about it after the second time, but I sure heard it, okay? Be careful that this rights of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block. I know the big picture here that they're doing here, and it's correct. It's saying, you know, you have a young Christian who's wobbling, that's struggling, saying, maybe you need to be careful how you deal with this young Christian. Because for them, it's, you could maybe be hurting them by seeing that you partaking of something that you know is okay to do, but they're still struggling. He said, for somebody sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple. Now, here's who's making, making a distinction. It's one thing to go to the butcher shop and recognize that this was on a pagan altar where it was slaughtered. It's another thing to say, well, we're going to have a re you know, a reception, and it's going to be at one of these pagan temples. People go, well, no, I, I don't know. 
And some of the Christians say, we, you know, we can go to the temp pagan temple. I mean, what's the problem with that? I mean, we all know there's only one God. I mean, it's not a problem for us. But some of these who are just coming out of this world are now saying, I, I, I feel nervous about going into this place. It's so much about idolatry. And you could see how this could cause this division and struggle on the church. And so he said, won't this weak conscience be encouraged to eat food and offer it to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died. Notice that phrase. The brother for whom Christ died. In other words, he's saying, you're all about rights during the Civil War. The whole question about, we want our rights. Okay, we, everybody wants rights. And he's saying, well, you know, he said, what about this person for whom Christ died? He said, maybe you say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm strong in my faith, I know that that was brought on an altar to Aphrodite's, and we are going to have a big party, and I'm going to the meal, I'm going to the meal. And other people saying, well, what about that young Christian that you were discipling, and, and he's really struggling with that. And Paul's saying, yeah, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. He said, now when you sin like this against that, you're sinning against Christ. In other words, when you say, I'll do what I want to do because I have my rights. Hadn't Paul told us a hundred times that we have freedom in Christ? Paul said, yes, it was 101 times, actually. He said, yes, I've said that a lot of times, but I keep wanting you to understand. There are times where you have to say, okay, I have the freedom to do this, but I'll choose not to do this out of care for this person that I love and that I care for. And so he says, therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, he said, I'll never eat food again, so I won't cause my brother to fall. And I'm saying, it's more important to me that this person's faith is affirmed, and we don't ask them to do something against their conscience, and if that's what we have to do, I won't have any more meat. I'll be done with it. That's what the problem is. Now notice what he says as he goes on here. It means the point that he's taking is very important. Love sometimes must limit freedom. Remember, Paul keeps talking about freedom, freedom in Christ, freedom in Christ. But there are times we have to say, you know what? If you follow your, quote, freedom, knowing that Aphrodite is an idiot. I mean, she's not anything. We don't care about Aphrodite. We can go to get the market. We can not only go to the market. We can go to the temple, and we can have a good time with everybody. And he's saying, what about these other Christians that are relatively young, who are struggling, who are really, really kind of nervous about going to a temple? That they, that, that they just, they've just come out of all of this idolatry. And he said, listen, sometimes love must limit freedom. That's a key theme that he's going to argue here. Sure, you have the right, but out of love for Christ and love for your brother or sister, you'll do what's something that's different. Now, notice what he says. Paul takes a little swing here. And what he says here is still bringing this together. But he starts saying with this issue about now, wait a minute. I, I am your apostle. He said, let me tell you a little bit. He says, he's asking these questions, and there's four of them that all answer with this same answer. First of all, he said, am I not free? In other words, as an apostle here, people go, yeah, sure you're free. You're not a slave or anything. You can do what you want to do. Okay, I'm not free. Am I not an apostle? Now, here's where it gets tricky. He says, am I not an apostle? Most of them would say, well, of course you're an apostle. You know, you saw the Lord on the, you know, Damascus Road, and you've been a great apostle. There are some of them that are probably going, well, he's not the real one because he wasn't there with the original 12. But anyways, he said, he said, have I not seen the Lord our Jesus? Yes, you have. Are you not my work in the Lord? And he's asking them, do you, do you recognize that I'm the one that brought you here? Yeah. And if I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you. 
for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Like if there's anybody who deserves to be treated well for what they've done and how they've served you in such a remarkable way, it's this group right here in Corinth. Now, most of the people are poor, I recognize, but there's a lot of rich people too. And he's saying there ought to be the fact that you recognize that as a brother in Christ and as one who has served well, that I ought to get at least some kind of help. When he talks about, remember earlier, this earlier passage, we're hungry, we're thirsty. We don't, you know, he's saying we're like living like worse than the slaves at times. And so he starts bringing up this issue of what do we do with this issue? How do we deal with people like this, whether it's pastors or he's talking about apostles? But notice what he says here. Paul says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we, the apostles, have a right to eat and drink? Like, don't we, shouldn't we have a share in what's going on? This is a fairly wealthy church. Is there nothing they could do to help us in the fact when we're hungry and don't even have the water to drink? He said, don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles and the Lord's brother in Cephas? This is very interesting, by the way. Here we are in the early part of the church and it does let us know that most of these apostles were probably married. In fact, some people think that Paul was married, that his wife died early on in their life as husband and wife. We can't in any way be sure until we get to heaven. Whatever it is, we know that he's not married at this point. But he said, don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife? Saying, you know, if, if my wife was with me and you say, yeah, we're going to give you a hamburger, but we're not going to give your wife one. It's like, really? I mean, this, well, you know, this important church is, is, thinks it's, it's wrong for me to take my wife with me? We just traveled, you know, 500 miles, uh, you know, by boat to come to you. And, and you said, yeah, we're going to give your husband a steak, but you don't get anything? You know, come on. Uh, what's going on here? He said, don't we have the right to be accompanied by a Christian wife like the other apostles, like the Lord's brothers? And he quotes them. In fact, if you, you don't have to turn to it. But if you turn to Mark, in Mark chapter 6, you have this interesting phrase where he said, isn't this, they're talking about Jesus, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? So they were offended by him. I think I lost the signal there for a moment. I don't know if you have or not. So if you hear me or But his point was, many of these apostles were married. This is an interesting thing today. So he said, goes to war at his own expense. In other words, do they tell you that you've got to get your own weapons? No. The king or the general, whoever it is, they give you the weapons for the war. Right, you don't have to do it yourself. He says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Well, that makes sense. If you're doing that, you ought to get the work out from the work that you put out. And he says, for who shepherds a flock and doesn't drink from the milk of the flock? In other words, don't you get some of that that's coming back to you from what you earn? And he says this, I like the way he says it. Am, am, I saying this, am I saying this from a human perspective? No. Doesn't the law always say, doesn't the law say the same thing? And then it's interesting. He goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. He said, for it was written in the law of Moses, quote, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. This is an interesting ancient idea. Saying, you know, that ox that is tethered to that thing and it goes around and they're crushing up the wheat and stuff and it keeps going around but he can't get his head down far to eat it 
His point is saying, hey, you know what's problem? What's happening here? And he said, listen, the ox has a right to eat some of the food. He's working hard, just like you guys are. He should get some of the food. And Paul said, that's true about me as an apostle, as one who's serving the Lord. And so he uses that phrase, and he said, well, isn't it really saying for us, yes, this is written for us, because he who plows ought to plow in, plow in hope, and he who threshes should do so in hope of sharing the crop. In other words, you should expect, he says, as an apostle, that you would be helping me out in what I'm trying to do. And he's saying, and you're not. And it's not because you don't have the ability to do so, it's because you choose not to. And so he says, if we have some spiritual things for you, in other words, I've poured my life in for a year and a half for you people, he said, is it too much that we would reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, don't we even more? However, we have not used this authority. Instead, we endure everything so we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul's being very clear here in what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? If we were the ones who gave spiritual help to you, could we not get material help from you? If I did this for you, spiritual help and physical stuff, and the point is, you can. Now, if some of you are thinking, Carl chose this passage because he wants a raise, it's not the point. <laughs> but it is making things saying it is important for those that serve the Lord to be able to be compensated. This is a big issue in a group that many of you will know about. It's called the Plymouth Brethren. The Plymouth Brethren were a group that came out of Wales and England, and a lot of them came to America, Canada, and it's an interesting group. Um, it's small and it's uh, declining quickly. But what was interesting with this group is that they had this whole thing about we had no pastor. Everybody felt male can be like a pastor. And they found out uh, well, the hard way that it didn't work out that well. And it was kind of like, really? You can't hear the same thing all the time. And his point is saying, listen, we, we, we've got to do something here. We've got to help them. So no, we had no pastor. And they wondered why they had very little teaching or training because of that. But know what Paul says. Do you not know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple? You put a temple thing there, you get to eat part of it. Those who serve at the altar share in the offering the altar in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. It's an interesting phrase, because even though this group, they don't take that passage to see what it seems to say. It seems to be saying, if you're the person that's sharing spiritual help, you ought to get physical help. And they're like, no, we're not going to do that. And it's been a, it's been a problem for them. But notice to you what he says. He says, okay, I've got the right to do that. And he said, but I have not used none of these rights, and I have not written this to make it happen. Wait for me. He says, no, I have all the rights to ask from you that you would help me. Not just spiritually, but physically. Food. Now again, as a pastor, you know, as a pastor, this is an important thing. I have a friend of mine who's in his upper 80s and uh, lived east of Texas here. And he said he remembered as a boy how interesting it was that there in that little Baptist church where he grew up, he said it was very, very, it happened very often times that there was no money to give to the pastor. He said what they gave is they gave what they had. He said, so the preacher would get maybe two bushels of apples, and he could either eat them or use them, or he could sell them then, you know, to somebody else. But he said it was very often the preacher would go a whole year with never have getting actually any cash. 
course, a lot of these people, deep depths of the recession, they didn't have it either. But in other words, the point was they did what they could with what they could give. They didn't have the money, but they did what they could. So sometimes you get like three pies and you hope that was enough for your family. But his point was, he said, I have decided to use none of these rights. So I could ask them from you and demand it from you, but I won't. He said, it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because an obligation is placed on me, and woe to me, I love this phrase, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Remember what he's saying. He said, I have every right to ask for help from you, and I won't take it from you. Not because I'm arrogant, not because I'm proud, because I don't want any one of you to say he's in it for the money. That was his M.O. during most of his ministry. I'm not going to take money from you. Obviously, he had to eat for the work people that perfectly helped him, but he means in terms of the church, the church itself. So he says, and woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That's what God's called me to do. For I do this willingly, I've got a reward. But if I'm willingly, well, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it free of charge and not make use of my authority in the gospel. For although I'm free from all people, I've made myself a slave to all in order to win more people. To the Jews, I've become like a Jew. To win the Jews, to those under the law, like those who are under the law through myself, I am not under the law to those who are under the law. And then he goes and thinks, to those who are outside of the law, like Gentiles, like one outside the law, not being outside of God's law, but under the law of Christ, to win those outside the law. To the weak, I become like the weak. In order to win the weak, I become all things to all people, so that I may by all means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, that I may become a partner of them. He keeps using that phrase, the gospel, the gospel. You get it? About the gospel. Do you realize it takes a sacrifice to do it? Yes. Are you willing to do it? be able to teach the gospel to people to hear the good news of Christ. And then he has this interesting phrase, do you not know, by the way, Paul loved sports. I don't particularly like you, you can probably guess, but he loves sports. And so he uses these analogies from his culture. Do you not know that the runner in a stadium, all race, but only one receives the prize? I'll stop here for a second. Paul is not saying only one Christian is actually going to be the one that gets it. Point is, he's talking about individuals. You run like you can. You do the very best that you can. He said, run in such a way that you may win. That is, by being faithful to the Lord. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control. For example, this is a good example. If uh, Kathy said, Cat Carl, I want you to run a marathon, a complete marathon this afternoon. Well, after they buried me, they probably questioned whether that was the right thing to encourage me to do that. Okay. I'm not in a position at this point. Tomorrow I probably will be. Okay. So not everyone who competes exercises self so everyone who does compete, they exercise self-control in everything. He said, however, they do to receive a perishable crown. We an imperishable The crown that you could get at the marathon is going to be gone in time. What God has for us as believers is forever. He makes that beautiful point. Therefore, I don't run like one who runs aimlessly, or I don't box like one who beats the air. That instead I discipline my body and I bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. 
two things I want you to think about real quick. This whole issue of self-control. People tell, say one of the things that we see particularly with younger people is the fact that it seems to be the fact that the unwillingness, maybe not wanting to, to be able to take self-control. They're saying, just saying, you know, I could do it, but I don't. And it's saying how important that is. For example, Paul puts it this way. He says, do you not know that the runners in the stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? He's talking about how in the Christian life, how important it is to be able to say, to stick with it, to do what you need to do. And he talks about how important that is to be able to serve the Lord in that way. Now, for he said, therefore, I don't run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one who beats the air. So I discipline my body. It's not just about like working out. It's talking about the gospel and what we do in serving him. What's well, an important passage what he's talking about? The other thing I want to share about is, just for a minute, it gives us a kind of a picture of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, it's so interesting that here, here he's feeling he is an apostle, and he's not getting a lot of support from anybody from it, but he's saying, okay, I'll do whatever I have to do for the sake of the gospel. The other thing that comes out of this passage when you think about it today is the distinction between their church and our church. I'll use our church as an illustration, but it goes through all, let's say, American evangelicalism. In his church, he lived in an era during the time where they could be captured, they could be killed, they could be tortured, they could have their children taken away. That gets your attention when they pull your children away and you're being taken to a cross where you're going to be burned. Tell you, you can be sure that the next meeting of the church there was a lot to talk about and a lot of people had something to think about. It's interesting that there's an article that came out, there's been several of them, this you may have seen it, where it's saying that probably within the next 10 years, the largest amount of Christians that there are in the world is China. Now think about that. China was once closed to the West, it was opposed to Christianity. They did everything good to destroy Christianity, and now it turns about probably in our decade, probably in the lifetime of our children, it'll be the largest group of, 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 China, of, Chinese people, of Chinese people here serving the Lord. It's unbelievable how God works in such amazing ways. But it does make us, and the point here is not to feel guilty, but the point is to realize the point, the world that, that he had to deal with, the Apostle Paul, so different. And because of the suffering, because of the hurt, it caused him to realize how important the gospel was. The problem is, for many of us, it's so easy to just get kind of like in a rut. We just do the church thing. Many of you are familiar with, um, I guess it's on here. If you can get maybe guy Francis Chan, many of you have read his book. I think it's Crazy Love, if I remember the name of it. But in it, it's an interesting book. And what he did, he took his family with him. They went like to Asia for a while and lived there for a while because he, you know, started this church that was up around 4,000 people, and he left. He said, you know, everybody likes me, everything's good. He said, I, I want to be on the front lines. And so he takes his children with them to a very difficult area. And he said, you know, here, here's what the American church is like today. Quote. He says, you go to a building, someone gives you a bulletin, you sing a few songs, a guy delivers a polished message. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Okay. Someone sings a solo, you go home. And the point is, if this is what American Christianity is all about, we're in deep trouble. In what way are we making an impact for the gospel? It's a good question to ask yourself. For us to ask ourselves as elders and as a church, in what way are we making a, making a difference? 
certainly, you know, Gary's out of town this week, but I know he'll be back soon, but one of the ways is what we're doing with ISI, working with these students, another thousand, or one thousand to two thousand, do you remember? Last I heard, like a thousand Chinese students come in this August. Many of them are looking for friends, looking for friendships, people to help them. We have got the privilege of doing this. Not just us, just other churches working together with this. This is something we can do. We don't have our own building. Okay, but we can still be friends with people. We can still care for them. Our family has really been helped by having friendship people. Lee Jin and Lee Jun and stuff. One of them just left for California. And we'll get, I guess we'll get another two coming up this fall. But it's been a privilege for us to do that, and it's had an impact. And I want you to be thinking about in what way does God want to use you to make an impact for the Lord? Grace Redeemer. It is important to tell them. Real quick, we talked about rights. I have the right to do what I want. Paul keeps talking about, we're free, we're free. Real quickly, Paul says, you know what? Sometimes you've got to be really careful. What about the weak conscience of your brothers and sisters? In other words, there are Christians, particularly these ones coming out of paganism, saying, I, you know, I just cannot eat that steak now that you told me that it was on the altar for Aphrodite. Can't do it. He had some people saying, What's your problem? What do you need? Go ahead and eat it. No problem. He said, I, I just can't go against my conscience. So then, okay, then I, I won't have it either. But that's what it is. I don't want to do anything to hurt you spiritually in any way. And so we talked about that phrase, brothers, about brothers and sisters, about having a weak conscience. We said, You've got to be careful where people are at and what their things are. But the other side, you've got to be careful too. Because sometimes you've got people who are kind of some called professional, weak, you know, professional weaker brothers. In other words, their whole thing is they want to make sure no one's having any good time. You know, it's the kind of thing you can be asking: Are you one of those people? Oh no, of course not. But I'm afraid you're having too much fun. No, no, no. We're not talking about that. But his point is, there are times when you have to say that love is more important than my rights, than my what I want. And what he says here is very important. And what happens is so often we have things that come up that it happens to us where it's really easy for us to start looking down at one of our brothers in Christ over the, quote, the freedom that they have. Let me give you two examples that have happened just in the last 10 years. Okay, here's one of them right here. Question, are you a weaker brother? Wheaton College. Wheaton College has for many years been sort of like the flagship of evangelicalism. Okay? In the last two years, they've had an ongoing debate about the issue of dealing with alcohol. Before their covenant was, if you know nobody who works there, nobody who's on faculty there, none of them will have any kind of alcohol. Beer, wine, none of that is allowed. And they found out that they're having a harder and harder time getting some really good faculty who said, you know, I certainly respect what you're saying, I don't see it that way, and I think I have the freedom of Christ to do that, and if that's what it means for me to work here, I think I'm just going to go somewhere else. And they had other people going to the more the theological one, saying, doesn't the Old Testament particularly talk about wine being that which God gives good to us and the importance of it? And were not the Puritans bringing beer, wine, and liquor with them when they came with the beer? Yeah, that's all true, but it said, but you have to, Christian, you've got to make a decision what you will or will not do. And they said at times it got a little bit tense. Some Christians think some other Christians there at the Wheaton were maybe 
going too far, and they couldn't go along with what was going on here. And it was easy to have people have not only hurt feelings, but Christians separating from each other over the issue of alcohol. It's not just Wheaton College. For example, Moody Bible Institute. Moody Bible Institute is known as one of the most really significant and very, very conservative evangelical things. And they now are allowing that they can have wine and beer for faculty and for people who are on, uh, there that are studying. Not students in the class kind of thing. But that also was a difficult thing. By the way, D.L. Moody, if he knew that they were allowing wine, he would roll over in his grave. He lived in that area where prohibition, prohibition itself was not there, but already there was all these different groups, suffrage, and all the things were happening, trying to get people away from all the terrible things that happened with alcohol. I mean, he, thank goodness he's with the Lord, and I hope the Lord has not told them that the school was named after him, that somebody is there standing there holding a pint. You know, that's what we don't want. But I guess when he gets to heaven, he won't care. But once again, here's a school that's got to make hard decisions. Some people said, this school's been here for 150 years, we're not going to have wine and beer, da-da-da-da. Other people saying, why not? We have the freedom in Christ. And you can see how people are clashing over this issue. And it comes back to saying, sometimes love has to be more important than your rights. And there's times you're saying, you know, I could have a beer. But to do that, you'd be offending this person I love, or I care for, or who maybe is a struggler, or who's a young Christian. Say, you know what? love to have a beer, but I'm not going to do that out of the gospel, because of the gospel. It means as Christians, we pray, we seek God's counsel, and we recognize that Christians can see things different ways. We're not talking about the core issues of the gospel, we're not talking about theology, but the way we deal with each other. And the fact that, well, as two Christians can see it different in a different way, but saying, more important than what I want is what God wants for this person. Father, we thank you passage. We thank you that Paul gives us a passage that gives us an illustration of what was happening then that's still happening right now at two of our better schools here in America. Father, we see again this whole issue of how we have freedom in Christ, and yet at times our love for the person who's struggling is more important than the rights that we have. Be with us, Lord. Help us now as we come to the Lord's table. Watch over us and be with us, we pray. We ask this